name is Naomi. I am one of the uh, Essex and Hearts Air Ambulance locum doctors, so I do as many shifts as I possibly can, because once you get the pre-hospital bug, it's very hard to shift. Um, and TACWA, thank you very much for inviting us over, um, and thank you for asking me to speak on catastrophic hemorrhage. Um, and thank you very much for doing the introduction today in English, so we can hear a little bit more about what you're doing. We really do appreciate that. I've picked up one word today, and that's TAC. I think it'll come in useful, so tack very much for the invitation to come this evening. <laughs> so, TACRA has asked me to talk about catastrophic hemorrhage, um, and so the overview of my talk, we're going to talk a little bit about the terminology involved, um, a bit of the epidemiology, we'll talk about where and when somebody can bleed and where from, a little bit about the physiology of hemorrhage, because uh, it's, it's quite a confusing world out there with sort of the, the clinical signs you might see with somebody who's, who's hemorrhaging. We're going to talk a little bit about acute traumatic co coagulopathy uh, and traumatic-induced coagulopathy. I'll try and be able to say them by the end of the talk. Um, and a little bit about what we can do with hemorrhage, because I hope what I will show you is major hemorrhage, especially in the pre-hospital environment and with trauma, is a real problem that we need to work better at solving. Before I go on, I need to just um, acknowledge a couple of people. Ross Davenport is um, another one of the doctors who flies with EHAT. Uh, we're very proud to have him on the team because he's also one of the best published uh, researchers in the, in the field of hemorrhage and trauma hematology. Uh, so thank you very much to him for, for sharing some of his insights with me. And also thank you, Google. You'll see a lot of uh, stuff pinched off Google in this talk. So what are we talking about? Hemorrhage blatantly defined, grossly defined, as an escape of blood from a ruptured blood vessel. And we can talk in terms of hemostasis, i.e. trying to stop that flow of blood. And we'll talk a little bit about the ways in which that can happen. I might refer to compressible or non-compressible hemorrhage, i.e. stuff you can put your hand on and try and stop the bleeding, and other bits of, of anatomy which are much more difficult to reach, so a non-compressible hemorrhage. When I talk about hemorrhagic or hypovolemic shock, we're talking in the realms of about 20% of somebody's circulating volume that's been lost. And if we're working in terms of somebody, an average person having about a five litre circulating volume, we're looking at people who've lost a litre or above. And we're talking a little bit about ischemia as well. So an awful lot of the physiology and the problems associated with uh, loss of blood because the blood is, is the vehicle by which oxygen is getting to and from your body tissues. It's, it's the, the trunk road getting the, the metabolites that your body is producing back and eliminating. So it's, it's really important basis for, for physiology and the metabolism going on in your body. And ischemia is when there's an inadequate blood flow to somewhere in your body um, and that can compromise uh, the functioning of uh, body organs. I will also refer to code red. So in the southeast of England, um, and especially in the hospital trauma system that we work in, we term code red as somebody who is having a catastrophic or a major hemorrhage. And we define that with a patient uh, who is at any point below 90 systolic in their blood pressure. And that's at any point of the, your contact with a patient, even if it's just a one-off blood pressure. Somebody who's not responding to a fluid bolus, and I'll come back a little bit to how and when we use fluids in hemorrhage. And generally, your spidey sense, your, your 
feeling of suspicion that this patient is bleeding from somewhere. You don't need to have all three of those categories. You just need to have a suspicion about one and you can declare it a code red. And I hope to be able to prove to you by the end of this talk that the earlier you diagnose hemorrhage, the better. How many people are we talking about? In the, in the UK, according to uh, the National Audit Office in 2010, there were 20,000 major trauma cases throughout the British Isles, and 5,400 5, of those, so over a quarter, died. In the UK, trauma remains the leading cause of death uh, if you are under 44 years old, and there's always been a male preponderance, so there's always more people, more men die in trauma um, than women. I like to think that's because women are better drivers. I'm just saying. <laughs> When you're looking at, the, if you're reading a little bit about hemorrhage, lots of data comes out of the States. Just bear in mind they have a slightly different mix of patients. They have an awful lot of uh, more higher penetrating injury and gunshot wounds. When you're reading about the epidemiology of, of hemorrhage or pre-hospital care, and this, this talk, is, I'm talking particularly about pre-hospital care hemorrhage. Back in the 1970s, an author called Cowley termed the phrase uh, the golden hour which in honesty is now a little bit of an outdated phrase. You will still hear it referred to. I think it's still useful because it talks about getting things done quickly and motivating a team to deal with a patient that needs to be in a centre of, of care that can look after their injuries. In uh, 1983, Trunkey uh, published quite a, a seminal paper talking about the trimodal distribution of death associated with trauma. And you can see there's the early deaths or the immediate deaths at scene, early deaths and late deaths. But in recent times, we're now seeing more. So um, Gunst et al. Et al. Uh, published a paper in 2010, which is starting to show that we're moving away from this trimodal three, three times where we see highest uh, peak of death to do with trauma to more a bimodal distribution of death. Technically, we think this is because our standard of care in trauma centres and our organisation of trauma teams and triaging patients to centre of excellence is getting a lot better. People are not hopefully ending up in small district hospitals dying of trauma. They are being triaged, especially with a team such as a HEMS team, to the correct place to deal with their injuries. So we're seeing fewer of these later deaths because we're getting better at dealing with uh, people who are catastrophically injured and have organ failure as a cause of it. But pertinent to what we're talking to tonight, the late deaths previously were often attributed to people who'd had a period of shock, i.e. this ischemia, lack of blood uh, going to body tissues, multi-organ failure, and also people who'd had a lot of crystalloid resuscitation. However, there is still this high immediate cause of death in trauma patients. And pertinent to what we're talking about this evening, 40% of those are due to exsanguination. So it's a problem that we need to start dealing with. So where are patients bleeding from? And when do we meet these patients who have these horrible suspected hemorrhages? The key is diagnosis. And in pre-hospital care, you learn very early on, you need to think about the mechanism of this patient's injury. You need to think about the, the mechanism um, by which they have, have come to grief. And diagnosis is key in that. 
So is it a blunt mechanism? Is it a patient who's a cyclist who's gone under a, a heavy goods vehicle, a, a big lorry? Is it somebody who's fallen from height? Someone who's been assaulted with a baseball bat? All these sort of blunt mechanisms by which they're going to have a high trauma load and large tissue injury. Or is it penetrating trauma? Somebody who's had uh, a stab wound from a, from a knife or from a machete. Um, I work in East London. There are some lovely people in East London. Um, I'll tell them about them later, but they tend to stab each other with things like bicycle spokes and this sort of thing. So is it something nasty and sharp that's penetrated? Or is it a bit of a mixed picture? Is it a blast injury where you're going to have shrapnel and some penetrating injuries, but also the shock wave of a blast and all of the associated maybe being blown a distance from the impact and sustaining blunt trauma as well? It's really important to think about where somebody is bleeding from anatomically and um, making a distinction between an arterial and a venous bleed. So we know about arteries. We know they, they're pulsatile bleeds. We're worried about them if they've got an arterial injury. Surgeons tend to get really excited. They're high-pressure bleeds, but actually they're quite low volume. As you sit here this evening, you actually have more blood in your venous system than in your arteries. They're, they're small volume, uh, low capacitance, but can be responsible for, if uncontrolled, a high rapid blood loss. Contrast that with the venous system. This is a non-pulsatile, rather more stagnant, uh, low pressure, but a very high volume. Um, and I think what I want you to take away from this is that actually venous bleeds matter. You can lose an awful lot of blood very quickly from an uncontrolled venous bleed. So just because you, you've stopped something pulsatile that's bleeding, don't, don't uh, disregard the insidious blood loss you can get from a venous bleed. Where is somebody bleeding from? This might be incredibly obvious. You might turn up and think, yep, that's very obvious. I know where they're bleeding from. But don't get caught out. It might not be their only bleeding point. There's easily missed injuries. So these wonderful people I'm talking about in the east, of London, east end of London do this thing called dinking. So they get a bicycle spoke and they try and stab each other in the perineum because they know it's going to cause uh, the person to have a defunctioning loop colostomy. So we have quite a lot of, of, of gang problems in London. And multiple stab wounds from various things. They have stab wounds in places you wouldn't recognise. And you won't see it unless you look for it. So when you turn up on scene, your responsibility is to check over, as part of your primary survey, to check that person all over for any form of penetrating injury. They might say, I've just been stabbed here, but actually that's okay. They're bleeding from a perineal wound that they maybe, with their catecholamine surge, might not even know that they have. They don't like being stripped at scene and looked at very closely in all of their various orifices, but it is your clinical responsibility to make sure you're not missing somebody who's bleeding. And there are some surprisingly bleedy wounds that you wouldn't think of. And I'm thinking probably particularly um, head and neck. So your head and your face um, have an amazingly good blood supply because obviously your brain is your vital organ that needs perfusing. So the blood supply to, your, to above your neck is maintained sometimes at, um, at the risk of other, blood, um, other body organs. Which means things like even a small head wound can have a massive blood loss. 
So don't discard it. Always check. Have a look around. Have a feel. Sometimes you've got a patient who's in head blocks and already immobilised by the time you get there. Always stick your head, your hand, right round the back of their head and look at your glove. Make sure you're not missing a bleeding point from somewhere. It's always really embarrassing when you do the final transfer and you move the patient across and there's a big pool of blood underneath the patient that you hadn't seen until you put them on the recess bed when you get to the emergency department. So always look for the supply, surprisingly bleedy bits. The other places are things like skin tears. Um, elderly patients particularly have very fragile skin and they can get sort of a, a laceration on their skin and it can bleed a lot, especially in dependent areas. So just be aware and, and stay vigilant. What about concealed bleeds? So you turn up and there's no obvious bleed, site of bleeding. But again, you're going to be thinking mechanism. You know that this patient has fallen from a great height. They might not have any penetrating wounds, but you are going to, with your clinical acumen, you're going to suspect this patient is bleeding from somewhere. And there's various places that you need to investigate and think about. Your body cavities. So you have big spaces in your chest, usually accompanied, uh, usually taken up by lungs and gas exchange. You can see on the picture on the left there, they've got some uh, rib fractures down the right-hand side. And if you get a bleed from either an intercostal vein or one of the, the larger um, blood vessels in the chest, your chest can rapidly fill with blood and you can lose a couple of litres into a, ch a chest cavity with, without much notice. So you're going to be doing your clinical assessment, you're going to be listening, looking, feeling as part of your primary survey. So always think, is there blood in this chest? Abdomens particularly. So on a, on a Tuesday morning we have a D&D session where we think and talk about our cases. And something that keeps come up, coming up in our discussions is the fact that actually examining somebody's abdomen, is it clinically worth it? Suspect injury if they've got a mechanism by which they could have been bleeding into their abdomen then declare it and think about it and start your treatment preemptively. Ab examining abdomen, it could be tense, could be uh, guarding associated with blood in the abdomen, but it can also be soft and floppy and still contain an awful lot of blood. So don't ever discount uh, a soft abdomen. When I was a medical student, I couldn't quite understand what all the fuss was about with regard to pelvis and bleeding. I thought the pelvis was a bone, and yet it was a big bone, but I didn't understand why people got so worried when somebody had a pelvic fracture. And then I did a bit more of the anatomy of it, and I realised that actually it wasn't the bone, the pelvis, that people talk about, it's the body cavity, the pelvic inlet, um, contained within the bone of the pelvis, which has some of the largest arterial and venous complexes in your whole anatomy. Pelvises bleed an awful lot. It can be quite a concealed bleed because it's obviously a body cavity and you can't palpate it because it's underneath bone. And the trick is to suspect it, to call it, to say you're worried about a, a pelvic bleed and to treat accordingly and to not move that pelvis around. We used to do, um, obviously trauma goes through a bit of a, an evolution and they used to be to spring the pelvis when you did your primary survey. We don't do that now because if you've got hemostasis in one of those pelvic vessels, if they've managed to clot, don't get rid of the clot by bouncing on their pelvis because they'll just bleed some more and it won't, it won't end well. So what we tend to do is we look at the symmetry. We maybe test a tiny bit to see if the pelvis is stable, but no springing on pelvises anymore. You're going to think about the pelvis according to the mechanism that you see. 
So a patient who has fallen from height or jumped from a building, landed on their feet, can have a really nasty vertical shear fracture. A hold of that pelvis has come loose and shunted upwards. And remember those plexuses that are on the inside of the pelvis, they will have been uh, disrupted as well. If you've been un unfortunate enough to be a cyclist who've been driven over by a lorry, you may well have an open book or a very nasty anterior-posterior uh, compression fracture of your pelvis. Your pelvis can be in bits. And things like people being T-boned from the side in a car, they can have a lateral compression fracture. So we often see pelvic fractures associated with motorcyclists who've hit the petrol tank. So always be thinking mechanism. Be worried about this patient's pelvis. Call it early. And long bone fractures. Um, so, even I can spot the fracture on that x-ray. Uh, that's a, a fractured femur, mid-shaft. And the thing that you'll notice when you first see this patient is that their, their leg is often shortened um, and usually it's a bit of a jaunty angle. And the problem with that is that what used to be a taut, well-tamponaded uh, area of the body with lots of fascia and lots of planes of muscles around some huge vessels that go round down the back of the pelvic, uh, back of the femur. Now is a saggy bag and you've got potentially an arterial or venous bleed going into this bag that's just accumulating fluid. So that's why we need that to be tractioned and pulled out to length to try and help compress that bleed. Again, you can lose easily a litre into your, the compartments of your thigh without knowing it. So think traction, we'll come back to that. So we're talking a little bit about the physiology of, of hemorrhage. I think the important thing to recognise with hemorrhage is it's actually a clinical syndrome in itself. Lots of sometimes subtle signs to pick up on that somebody might be bleeding or an ongoing bleed or having suffered a big blood loss. So this is seen, obviously this is the, this is the pattern of injury. You have an injury, you're stabbed, you're hit by a car, you fall off a roof, and you're going to lose blood. You become hypovolemic, and you get a fall in your central venous pressure. This is seen, and then your heart picks this up, because it's not getting as much filling from the venous system as before, because it's under low pressure. You get decreased cardiac filling, which means if you're not filling the heart, the cardiac output is also reduced. So then all of your body tissues are getting reduced perfusion because the heart's not got the blood to pump to it. Where you've got reduced perfusion, you have reduced oxygen delivery, and then you're already starting the cascade from your aerobic respiration through to your anaerobic respiration and generation of acidosis. There are certain compensatory mechanisms that the body is well adapted to deal with. Um, and they look at things like the bar baroreceptor reflexes, um, sensing if something's become hypovolemic, thinking about um, the generation of acidosis and uh, problems with gas exchange, your chemoreceptors will come into play. When your fight and flight responses or somebody who's under physiological stress starts to release a lot of adrenaline, so you've got circulating ca um, catecholamines and um, inher inherent vasoconstrictors trying to reboot the input to the heart. There are some longer-term mechanisms. You've got your renal fluid absorption, um, reabsorption, and activation of thirst over a long time, somebody who's potentially anemic. Um, and also, you'll get, from third spacing, you'll get um, 
reabsorption of uh, peripheral uh, tissue fluid back into the circulating volume. So there's a couple of uh, pictures there just showing how these all interact, uh, the reflex systems. Some of them are not actually that helpful in the context of pre-hospital care because the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system takes a few days to get into place. So we're not going to think about that. We are going to look about what happens, what, what is this patient going to look like who's gone under a lorry and has dumped two litres into their pelvis? What's this patient actually going to look like and why? So they've got some blood loss, their gas exchange is shoddy, their chemoreceptors are firing like mad saying we need more oxygen going around to the body tissues. You're going to have decreased arterial pressure, so you have really poor thready pulses peripherally. Um, and so the baroreceptors are going to fire. And this all looks to stimulate the heart, saying, come on, come on, give us some more oxygen to the body tissues. And in that, your body is also programmed to, pro to try and save the vital organs first. So you're going to get changes and shifts. The body is incredibly well designed to maintain blood perfusion to the brain, to the heart, and to the kidneys above all else. So when it's under threat, you'll get vasoconstriction away from places like the gut, or some muscle beds, um, in order to try and get as much blood as possible returning to the heart and up to the brain. So your patient that you come to has gone under a lorry, they're going to be tachycardic. They're going to have a very high respiratory rate, and we know that respiratory rate is probably the least well-documented and well, least well-looked-for sign, but it's probably the most, the earliest and most sensitive uh, physiological sign that somebody is under some form of um, aerobic stress. We talk about oxygen hunger. You will see these patients and they are breathing 10 to the dozen trying to get as much oxygen in as possible. They will be peripherally shut down. They may be icy cold to touch peripherally and that's because the, the um, body is trying very hard to get what blood it can to the brain, um, to the heart and potentially to the kidneys. I've put hypertension down there, low blood pressure last, because actually that's a really late sign. Blood pressure is, is incredibly unreliable. Don't, don't trust a blood pressure at scene. Go with your gut feeling, think about the mechanism, worry about whether or not uh, this patient is bleeding from somewhere. They may well have a great blood pressure. They might have a better blood pressure for, than you have but actually that doesn't mean very much because they've got an awful lot of circulating adrenaline going. And if you remember when I said we look at um, code red and we declare on just one blood pressure reading of 90, because actually you can be in quite a dynamic system with your, your blood pressure and your cardiovascular parameters at scene. So just one low blood pressure, it's a very late sign, don't miss it and don't rely on the blood pressure. So audience participation, who likes studying the coagulation system and learning the intrinsic and extrinsic pathway. Has anyone enjoyed that? Who's had to do it? Who's had to learn it? Hands up. Okay. I need to apologise to you. Bad news. It's totally useless. You will have to learn it for every exam you ever take. Um, but actually, it is now known to be just a model and an idea of what's happening. I'm very privileged to work at the Royal London where an awful lot of the research is going on to actually what actually is involved in coagulation. And the more modern theory, rather than this nice colour-coordinated 
algorithm that we have to learn every time we take an exam and promptly forget the next day. Actually, it looks a little bit more like something you'd see out the front window of the Starship Enterprise. There is so much involved in coagulation. It's completely um, embedded in part of your immune system. Uh, there are so many things that are involved. We used to think that if you just keep a patient warm, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll avoid this uh, trauma triad of death, which is really cheerily termed, but very important to know about. You're going to have problems with blood clotting, and we'll go into this in a minute. Um, you're going to have lots of acidosis, and we know that a patient that gets cold bleeds more and has more problems with the restitution of their, of their clotting system. So I, I mentioned Ross Davenport um, at the beginning, and he's been very instrumental as part of the research team. If you want to know more about trauma, traumatic coagulopathy or anything to do with what happens to somebody's blood system and the, the latest research, either Google Ross Davenport's name or Prof Karen Brohe, who's sort of heading up a lot of the research. And they're making amazing leaps and bounds to try and work out why patients bleed so badly after uh, trauma. And so you'll hear two different terms in the, banded around in the literature, um, acute traumatic coagulopathy and trauma-induced coagulopathy. Um, and just wanted to try and decipher those for you um, briefly here. So acute traumatic coagulopathy, we're looking at the early processes. So that patient who's lying on the road, getting cold, bleeding, having gone under a lorry, they are starting to have early signs of problems with their clotting, even then. Um, it's associated with the tissue injury load, and I'll show you where it comes into play in a, in a diagram in the next slide. Talking about it's very dependent on the perfusion and the hypoperfusion and the schema that you see from this disrupted uh, blood flow. It involves activation of protein C and leads to this global anticoagulation. And it's also dependent um, and thoroughly implicated in the um, hyperfibrinolysis that we see. I knew I was going to struggle with these long words. Um, but that seems to be, on the acute side, a really dominant mechanism of the hyperfibrinolysis that goes on. You'll also see in the literature trauma-induced um, coagulopathy. This is more of an established state slightly later on in somebody's journey after they've been an unfortunate victim of a severe trauma. And we know that this is the one that is exacerbated by hypothermia, acidosis. And also it's really important to think about what we do when we come to scene because we often give fluids and I'm going to talk a little bit about why we don't do that as often anymore. So this is acute traumatic coagulopathy in a nutshell, or this is my understanding of it. So you're going to have trauma, you're going to have a tissue injury, so i.e. they've fallen from height, they've gone under a bus, they've been hit by a car, they're going to have a big area, the area of excoriation you see of tissue damage, somebody who's been in a blast injury, the shock wave, the shrapnel, all of these things activate um, processes in their endothelium. And they activate protein C particularly, which works with the plasminogen activating inhibitor factor 1 and starts to lead to this global anticoagulation that you will see. Tissue injury on one side, hypoperfusion and hypoxia on the other. And then other mechanisms come into play as well. So continued blood loss. So somebody comes along and springs the pelvis and they start bleeding again. That's going to make it all worse. Hypothermia. 
somebody getting cold, how often do we look at a patient and we want to examine them, we want to see every bit of them, and it's fine for us because we're in lots of layers of clothing, but we've come along with tough cuts and stripped them and they're getting cold and they're lying on a cold floor. We know that um, acute traumatic coagulopathy is associated with quite a profound acidosis. And you actually, in order to play a part, you need this sort of profound acidosis of pH of, of less than 7.1. And again, people come along and they put bilateral IV axis in and think two litres of crystalloid. And you're getting this hemodilution effect. So they've not got a lot of circulating blood and hemoglobin to start with, and it's diluted further by any additional fluids. So that plays a role in this coagulopathy that develops. We know that platelets don't work brilliantly to do with trauma. We know that there's an awful lot of pathways um, that re release adrenaline. So your neurohormonal pathways in the body, fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, circulating ca um, catecholamines, all of these come into play and make the pattern a lot worse. Fibrinolysis is a natural, normal part of hemostasis. If we didn't naturally uh, lyse some of our clots, we'd all be dead of uh, venothromboembolism very quickly. So you need to start breaking down the clots as well. But we know that this goes haywire in trauma. And you get this endothelial dysfunction associated with a tissue injury, which means all of your normal immune-type responses associated with body tissues go haywire and become um, dysregulated. And the circulating catecholamines from all of that also make the fibrinolysis a lot worse. So when we're thinking about what we can do to prevent trauma and to prevent the, these 40% of, of trauma deaths who die of exsanguination, remember this and remember the bits of this diagram that you can do something about. So you can give oxygen, you can minimise ongoing blood loss by spotting it early, by compressing what you can compress, by not springing a pelvis. And we're going to go through some of the other reasons, other things that we can actually do at scene to prevent blood loss. But we also know that tranexamic acid works um, and it seems to be really um, quite instrumental now in our management of trauma at scene. So like I said, fibrinolysis, normal required part of your everyday haematological function, but it goes a bit mad in trauma. And the CRASH-2 collaborators found a very strong association with a benefit of seeing Patients do better when they've had tranexamic acid if they've a high um, injury load and a traumatic um, hemorrhage. So it was first seen in uh, some of the elective surgical patients that if they lost a lot of blood, they did better if they got tranexamic acid. CRASH-2 took that out as a very large multi-centre trial and showed a benefit of giving a gram of tranexamic acid within three hours of trauma. And these are the patients that are doing better and this is contributing to that reduced late deaths that we're seeing. What more can we do? So remember that coagulopathy, remember all of those things about diagnosing and the physiological signs, some of them are very subtle. What can we do when we're faced with this catastrophically hemorrhaging patient? On the left here you can see um, one of our standard operating procedures. They are guidelines with, within which we try and work, but obviously pre-hospital care, it's very difficult sometimes to predict the exact circumstances you'll find yourself in. But they're there to guide us with how we should be managing these patients, and they're um, evidence-based. 
It says here, every effort should be made to minimise blood loss, maximise clot formation, minimise clot disruption. It's essential to release the effects of, uh, re realise the effects of patient handling, packaging and splintage on natural tamponade and to use these as much as we can as a fundamental part of volume resuscitation. I'm not going to talk too much about packaging and handling because Laurie's the expert in that. He's going to speak to you next. So remember the picture of the different sorts of bleeding you're going to get at scene? What are you going to do? Direct pressure. The CABC, catastrophic hemorrhage first, even before airway. If you see something spurting, pumping away, stick some pressure on it. Let's get hemostasis early. Direct pressure, indirect pressure. So that's pressure points. You've got a bleeding artery, press the artery above. Brachial, axillary pressure, trying to stop the peripheral hemorrhage. And these are obviously the compressible type hemorrhages. We talked about how much blood you can lose from a scalp wound. Suture it, staple it, put a blast dressing on it. We carry Celox gauze, um, which I often wonder how these things are found out, but apparently if you crush a load of mollusks and impregnate some bandage with it, it works wonders to clot formation. I don't know how they found this out, somebody with an amazing imagination, but it works brilliantly. And we often stick some of the Celox gauze around a bleeding wound or into a, a sort of a bleeding wound, and it helps form this natural clot. We, I've mentioned blast dressings. Have you all seen a blast dressing? If not, hopefully we'll look at the, some of them in the skill station tomorrow. But they're essentially a big pad of... Um, absorbent dressing but come with a big elasticated uh, bandage so you're putting direct pressure and then with each turn of the bandage you can exert more pressure to stop the compressible hemorrhages and the cap tourniquet the combat application tourniquet uh, hopefully you've seen one of those um, developed obviously in the military but now a brilliant way of stopping for example a traumatic amputation, stopping those kinds of bleeds um, when you need to um, apply one around an extremity. A word about them, stick a couple on a leg. The legs generally conical shaped, they can come loose. Um, and something else, tourniquets really hurt. They really hurt a patient, so be mindful of proper analgesia, because what we don't want is to cause them more pain, to increase their heart rate, to increase their circulating catecholamines, to worsen the hemorrhage. So just be mindful at all times, how can we stop this patient bleeding and how can we do it humanely and in the best way for the patient? Remember the picture about the fractured femur? All foreshortened fractured femurs need to be brought out to length, maximize, minimize that limb circumference, maximize the, the tamponade from muscles and ligaments around those bleeding um, bones. We have the uh, Kendrick traction device. We carry two of them to every, every scene uh, we go to. You can see it in the picture on the top left. Um, great way of being able to straighten a limb but not put any pressure on the pelvis because, unfortunately, motorcyclists often break both their pelvis and a femur. So we don't want to put pressure on one and exacerbate the other. We carry two pelvic splints in our secondary pack. Um, and Laurie's going to talk a little bit more about them and also the, how to actually apply one. But generally, move the patient once, do it well, do it quickly, minimise the movement of the pelvis, and then bind it. And try and keep that pelvis nice and static and help those big venous complexes we, knew, we know they're in the inside to stay still enough to hopefully form a clot. We also carry Benacar splints. 
So for especially for um, tib fib or um, radial and ulna, some humeral fractures, uh, they are water activated. Uh, so we have it comes as a sort of a, um, a material type um, impregnated with like a plaster cast, but not. It's often the job we give the pilot to do when we land. We say this patient's going to need a, a Benner cast, and they open a packet of saline, pour it in, shake it up, and then it gets a bit warm, and you can actually form a proper splint around an appendage. It's a really good way of both stopping a hemorrhage, because you're not having an end of a, a jagged long bone waggling around, but also it's, it's humane for the patient, because it gets into alignment. It's part of your analgesic ma management of that patient. Again, I'm not going to go too into detail about how we handle and package because that's Laurie's talk, but just bearing in mind what I've said about how different splints, pelvic slings, all these things, how you're going to package a patient in the best way. Um, we carry a heating blanket um, or a blizzard blanket in order to try and minimise any further blood loss and actually heat patients, um, warm them up if they've been in an exposed environment and they are cold. So fluids, good thing or bad thing? Put your hand up if you think that giving somebody fluids is part of hemorrhage management, or prior to this talk you thought it was. You're right, it is part of, of hemorrhage management. This patient is hypovolemic and they need some volume. Question is how much fluids and when do you give them? Long gone are the days when you stick two big cannulas in and you have a paramedic squeezing on either one because they need two litres, everyone needs two litres of fluids. What we need is to target the patients that would benefit a small fluid bolus and to use it in those patients. The rule of thumb that we use or from our um, penetrating trauma and hemorrhage SOP is somebody who's verbally responsive. Do you remember in our code red criteria we're talking about responsive to a fluid challenge? We're going to try and give fluids to make somebody verbally responsive, i.e. they're perfusing their brain. So if you get to scene and they're bleeding and when they were, they were talking to you a minute ago and now they've lost consciousness, we would, in that situation, give a 250ml fluid bolus to see if actually that peps them up and they're talking to us again. That's somebody who's responsive to a fluid bolus. If somebody's unconscious and they don't have a radial pulse, we'd potentially give a small fluid bolus um, in order to restore radial pulses. I think the important thing about fluid management is to, to really bear in mind this concept of preserving a clot um, and the underlying mechanism and whether or not there's actually a low flow state going on. So we know that your body is designed amazingly and your body will try and maintain perfusion to the brain, to the heart and to the kidneys. And it will do that at the, the, uh, at the expense of skin, muscle, gut. So actually, even if this patient doesn't have peripheral perfusion, they may well have a low flow state. Actually, their brain, their heart, their lungs are getting a little bit of the, still a little bit of flow. What we don't want to do is just treat the numbers, we want to get the blood pressure up, so we whack in some fluids, and actually, if we increase their central venous pressure, we may well blow off a clot that they have been forming and actually make the situation worse, as well as contributing to this hemodilution effect. So fluids do have 
a very large place in our treatment of hemorrhage, but they're not the be-all and end-all, and they should be used wisely. Traumatic cardiac arrest. So it's a whole seminar conference in itself, let alone one slide in a talk. But it is also one of the other mechanisms by which we can try and establish um, hemostasis at scene. Traumatic cardiac arrest, uh, sorry, resuscitative thoracotomy, for example, is we have two indications in our guidelines. One is a relief of cardiac tamponade, and the other one um, is for distal aortic control. So resuscitative thoracotomy, putting your hand into the chest cavity, occluding the descending aorta. And usually we use it if someone we think has got a, a massive bleed into their abdomen or their pelvis. And I'm not going to talk too much more about that because that's uh, Simon's talk shortly about other ways in which we can prevent uh, distal hemorrhage. The take-home message about traumatic cardiac arrest is that actually hemorrhage is still a massive problem. So the history is obviously the ASCOT guidelines came out from the state saying actually everybody who has traumatic cardiac arrest, it's futile. And we know in the UK and in the HEM systems, actually there are survivors from traumatic cardiac arrest. And this was a bit of a, um, a, a seminal paper that really turned the tide in, in the way in which we looked at traumatic cardiac arrest, showing that people who have cardiac tamponade or a high C-spine injury or a head injury or hypoxic insults, these are the patients that you can turn around and actually get an output and they do have survival. Subsequent papers to this have shown that actually with the HEMS interventions that we can put into place, you can have meaningful neurological outcome from somebody who previously would have been deemed unsalvageable. Unfortunately, when it comes to hemorrhage, the take-home message is in this seminal paper and in subsequent papers since. The survival from traumatic cardiac arrest in hemorrhage is still really bleak and very low. Only one patient in the 909 cases that looked at in that seminal paper survived when their traumatic cardiac arrest was um, caused by hemorrhage, which is quite sobering, which is why I hope I've convinced you that hemorrhage is a really big problem and one that we're still not fully uh, dealing with and one that needs more effort uh, put into it to, to work out how we can save these 40% of patients that die early at scene from hemorrhage. So we've talked about the terminology, talked a little bit about the epidemiology, the size of the problem. I hope you're going to think about the mechanism by which your patients are injured and you're going to, in your primary surveys, be looking for these clinical features and the physiology of hemorrhage, thinking about all the injuries, all the places they could be bleeding, you haven't missed any. Bearing in mind the things that you can do to reverse and prevent acute traumatic coagulopathy and treat uh, people who have had a large um, hemorrhage, things like tranexamic acid and stopping of ongoing blood loss. And we thought a little bit about the uh, interventions that we as an advanced HEMS team can bring to scene. There are a whole load of references, um, but that's all I wanted to speak to you about tonight and I'm happy to take any questions.